All right. I'm super excited. Uh, so welcome to the Political Mike podcast. And I am your host, Michael Taylor. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> My name is Ariana Patton. I'm a 3L law school student at Thurgood Marshall School of Law in Houston, Texas. And I have the honor to be a host for the Political Mike Podcast Women's Edition. Yay! So before I introduce my amazing panelists, I'm going to first tell you a little bit about Women's History Month. So every year, March is designated as Women's History Month by presidential proclamation. The month is set aside to honor women's contributions in American history. Women's History Month began as a local celebration in Santa Rosa, California. The Education Task Force of Sonoma County, California, commissioned on the status of women, planned and executed a Women's History Week celebration in 1978. The organizers selected the week of March 8th to correspond with International Women's Day. The movement spread across the country as other communities initiated their own Women's History Week celebrations the following year. And so in 1980, a consortium of women's groups and historians led by the National Women's History Project successfully lobbied for national recognition. And in February 1980, President, President Jimmy Carter issued the first presidential proclamation declaring the week of March 8, 1980 as National Women's History Week. Subsequent presidents continued to proclaim a National Women's History Week in March until 1987, when Congress passed public law designating March as Women's History Month. Between 1988 and 1994, Congress passed additional resolutions requesting and authorizing the president to proclaim March of each year as Women's History Month. Since 1995, each president has issued an, an annual proclamation designating the month of March as Women's History Month. And so here we are today. All right, so we're going to start by introducing these amazing panelists. We're going to start with Cassandra Knopf. Um, Cassandra Knopf is a staff attorney with the finance firm Chapman & Cutler LLP. Her work is primarily in commercial lending and banking, but she also enjoys the work offered in environmental, social, and governments at the firm. Her passion for racial, social, and environmental justice are what brings her to places like the political mic. Welcome, Cassandra. Thank you. It's nice to be here again. And it's really nice to be here on a panel with such wonderful uh, women. Uh, as well. So I'm excited to have this discussion. Well, we are excited to be with you. All right. The next we have Alessia Bucal. Um, yes, she's exactly right. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's because I asked uh, Michael Taylor before. I was like, I have to spell her name right. This is a woman thing, you know? <laughs> Um, so you, Alessia is a proud graduate of Oakwood University at HBCU in Huntsville, Alabama, where she completed a bachelor's degree in political science with a minor in business management. She is a graduate assistant at the Center for Congressional and Pre Presidential Studies and an editorial assistant on the Taylor Fillmore Project. She studies political communication in the School of Public Affairs at, and Education Policy and the School of Education at American University. Alicia is a proud elementary educator and an equity fellow in the Baltimore City Public Schools District. She's a CEO and founder of Ford Advising Center, where she provides academic assistance towards post-secondary attainment, and she is an education and empowerment content creator. Well, welcome, Alicia. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're happy to have you. All right, next we have Elena Henry. Elena obtained a Bachelor of Social Work from Oakwood University and a Master of Social Work with a focus on international human rights law, foreign policy, and social leadership from Florida State University. She worked for the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. as a visits and events officer, also was the British uh, I'm sorry, embassies through 19, 2019 and 2020 emerging leader and a chair for the minority ethnic group she currently works as a ministerial engagement officer for the British government in London. Well, welcome, Elena. Thank you. So great to be here. And sorry, it's like 11 p.m. my time, but oh, no. happy to be here. <laughs> We're happy to have you. Thank you for taking the time to spend with us. All right. Now we have Kyla Terry. Kyla graduated with her BA in International Studies from UCLA in 2019, and in May 2020, she obtained her MA in International Relations from Georgetown University with a focus on forced displacement, European migration policy, and U.S. refugee law. She also has certificates in 
Diplomatic Studies, Refugees, and Humanitarian Emergencies in African Studies. Currently, she serves as a Congressional Fellow on VP Harris, uh, I should say, I should have said that better, Domestic Policy Team working on immigration and national security issues. And she is also the U.S. Institute of Peace Research Analyst in the African Center, or Africa Center. She attends in a personal capacity. Welcome, Kyla. Thank you for having me. And hello, everyone. All right. Well, everyone here is highly educated, so we love to see it. <laughs> I'm just I'm like, re I read your bios before, but I'm rereading and I'm like, oh, goodness, like maybe I need to step up my game. I need a few more degrees under my belt. Um, but it's great to be. I'm so happy to have, have you guys here. Um, this is going to be a great discussion. So happy to hear your thoughts on these topics. Well, being that it's Women's History Month, I have to start, have to, have to start with the Supreme Court of the United States confirmation hearing of Judge Kentaji Brown Jackson. I mean, honestly, if I didn't start, I would be upset with myself. <laughs> so we're going to start with the first question. Well, one, I just want to hear your, you guys' thoughts. You know, as I was watching the hearing, um, I, I was saying that I am so proud of her. I feel like the daughter of um, Justice Jackson Brown. And I feel you know, as she's talking, there's a lot of questions that were just like, <sighs> I understand. Like, you know, just like the size that she was giving. It was like, I, I get that. I understand that. It's because like you're not only are you attacking my character, but, you know, these are questions that probably are need to ask. Like when Ted Cruz was like, you know, do you believe in um, that there's racist babies? And it's like, is this a conversation that we really need to have? <laughs> like, you know, and so I like just her strength. Um, and I, you know, it's just great to see that this is a, this is a major moment for everyone and for women, for black women, for black people, for anyone that believes that this is a, a moment, you know? And so I just want to hear you guys' thoughts and, you know, how do you guys feel as well? Every time I watch it, I am so motivated. I look at her and just see how she has such class, such professionalism from Ted Cruz to Josh Hawley to Senator um, Lindsey Graham. All of their opening statements just had so many um, underhanding violence that, that was pretty much incited from how often they brought up sex offender cases um, to how they a lot of times brought up a firm action. You know, I truly agree when you talk about how they're really trying to um, devalue her and attack her character. And she just sits there, you know, she sits there and she takes it and it takes me back to Brett Kavanaugh and how, you know, he lost his, himself at times. And the, co the comments or questions that she's getting to me seem like it's a bit more harsh or a bit more, a lot more harsh than what he received. And he couldn't control himself. And so just to see her and how she holds her composure, I mean, it's just it's just amazing to me. And when I saw that picture of how her daughter smiled at her, I was like, that is me. That's me. <laughs> you know, that is me smiling at her and seeing that it's possible and just seeing the strength that um, that she has. And when Senator Cory Booker started talking, I started crying. And usually I'm watching it before my students come in the morning. Um, but when I watched it back during my lunch break, I, I started crying. I was just like, I, I, I'm not letting anyone steal my joy from how she sits there and how she stands firm in her belief and in, in what she believes in. Like she doesn't change her stance on no matter how Republicans are framing those questions and how she articulates herself. I mean, it's just all amazing to see. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I just want to jump in there really quick. I mean, I think uh, Senator uh, Booker's remarks was one of the highlights for me, to be honest. Um, and just like the power and strength that you can really feel from what he was saying uh, and like that emotional tie as well. And you have to remember, this is a woman who um, she literally ticks off all the boxes. And as you saw, she was still getting questioned as, she, as if she was a criminal. Uh, so you have to kind of understand like that is kind of the world we live in. That's the society that we live in. Um, and if you just hear her story about her teacher, for example, uh, saying don't aim high when it came to, to Harvard, not only did she she succeed, but she excelled. So it's just teaching us that 
no matter who you are, no matter what society may say about you or place these um, sanctions or put you in a box, you can really break through that wall and actually succeed higher. And I think one of the important things also in learning more about her history is that she also um, supports uh, other young girls and she teaches them to, to aim high. Uh, and I think that's important, just that piece of giving back. Um, Cause I think uh, for so often we see a lot um, of successful people within the black community reach those higher heights. But the question is, do they ever give back? And I think she has done exceptionally well in that area. No, I definitely agree. And and when I also when I heard Senator Booker's comments, I I bawled because that was a moment that I don't think I think that she needed because, you know, after all of the belittling comments that they were throwing at her, it was like I, I saw the tears and I'm like, yeah, I would be crying too, you know, to have someone to be there saying, you know, I believe in you. I can't, you know in public you know there's a lot of you know behind the scenes comments and stuff that, that people will say like oh yeah you know you're gonna be great but to be there in that moment and to publicly say you know i believe you i thank you you know this is a great moment for you you know you don't get that a lot so i appreciate senator booker for what he did with that so as we're, we're going to segue into some questions um so we're going to start off with why do you think that Senator Graham willingly publicly threw his support behind Judge Childs early on, but is not so willing to show any uh, support for Judge Kentaji Brown Jackson? And this is the open forum. So if anyone wants to comment. I mean, I don't really think that any of us really need to say the specific one. We know why he won't support Judge Kintaji Brown-Jackson. Um, I, I think it's fairly obvious um, that any excuse he would come up with would be pretext for the underlying issue, which is inherently like a disrespect for women and specifically women of color and very specifically black women. Um, so I... I think that that has more to do with it than anything to do with political posturing or uh, anything to do with their record as judges. Um, I do find it very distasteful that they go so deep into her record and try to do that while they were literally uh, coddling Amy Coney Barrett when she was forgetting the first five uh, rights protected under the First Amendment and she couldn't list them in front of the Senate. And it was it was basically watching them be like, oh, no, it's fine, patting her head. Meanwhile, they're treating uh, uh, Judge Jackson this way. It's <laughs> it's very obvious what's happening, I suppose. And so um, when they do attack things like this, it, it's very clear that they don't have any real reasons to say that she's not qualified for the position. Um, but they want to make as big of a show as possible showing that they disapprove. I think that's the true message they're trying to get across to their constituents. And, and the constituents aren't gonna remember, you know, two weeks from now that they were upset with her over light sentencing or being soft on crime or things like that. Um, they're just going to show, remember that they disapproved. So that's my two cents on it. <laughs> Does anyone else have any comments? I will say, I think an element of it is just political posturing. I mean, Judge Childs was what from Central South Carolina, Lindsey Graham also from South Carolina. I'm not quite sure what that does um, for him. Maybe she'll feel like she'll owe her some sense of allegiance um, regarding like potential cases in the future. Um, and I think Kentaji's statement of I'm not a policymaker, like I'm here to interpret the law. Lindsey Graham views that she'll, that's, that's her philosophy and it's a great one and it's the job of a justice. And I think that Lindsey Graham believes that Judge Child may, may be somewhat more amenable. Um, I can't, it's an impartial, it's the most impartial, most neutral forum um, in the United States. So I'm not quite sure how he's planning to pull that one off, um, but yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just to add to that, I, as you were saying, when she was like, I'm not a policymaker, you know, for me, that was a moment. It's like, 
you know, are you asking this question? You know, are you asking these questions because you genuinely do not know, you know, how the law works, or are you asking these questions? I guess to you know continue to belittle me. It's like you know when you're asking about sentencing, I'm not the person that is creating the law. You guys are creating the law. Congress creates the law. I'm interpreting the law. So it's like you know if you want to really talk about sentencing, you guys change sentencing laws. I'm just here to make sure that the laws are you know um, fulfilled. So um, yeah, that was a, you know, for that, that was another one. Cause I, I also, I want to go into public policy and I am in law school. So it was like, this is what we mean by, we need more, you know, senators that fully understand, you know, I'm here having to study the law for three years and you guys kind of get off by not even knowing what, you know, how, I mean, you know, how law is created, but you're asking questions like this. So that's just, you know, a little snip, uh, expert, uh, it, so I'm going to let's talk about um, I, we'll keep let's keep it going. What are the, what are you guys thoughts on the assertions, the treatment of Judge Jackson by Democrats and the media is far different from how they treated Justice Amy Coney Barrett during her confirmation? I mean, pretty much know the answer to this, but still want to hear you guys' thoughts. <laughs> I mean, it has been different because they're different justices. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's ultimately it. I, I dislike the idea that there has to be a both sides argument to every single thing that is set up as a framed dichotomy, because it's not the same. We're not talking about women who are equally qualified. We're not talking about women who had to go through similar uh, gauntlets in order to be considered for this job. And uh, we are not dealing with a Senate that is treating them in similar ways. So of course, the treatment of her by the media is going to be different. I think that there's a discussion to be had about whether or not media takes responsibility for the kinds of uh, points of views that it amplifies just generally. But I think like when we talk about specifically these instances, it's a red herring that the right especially is trying to throw out there because again, like I said, they don't have anything real and substantial to complain about. She's an excellent juror for our jurist from what we've seen and um, knows her law, is very measured in her uh, demeanor, which is what you want from someone who interprets the law and applies it to your case. So, um, yeah. Any other thoughts on that? And we also, given the fact that we have our first Black and Asian American vice president, and like now we have this historic nomination, like it's also very hard to just ignore the fact that like, one, she is way qualified and I think some political articles said four of the justices combined, but you add that in tandem to like Kamala Harris's background, it's just like these overqualified women like deserve this. Like Cora Booker said, like you're, you're worthy of this position and like they are and like the media should rightfully demonstrate that. I think it goes um, a little bit beyond just qualifications and educational backgrounds. I think Republicans are really trying to send a message that Democrats, like um, I think it was either Graham or Ted Cruz said that this is, has become a political circus um, and how Democrats are really using um, Judge Brown Jackson as an affirmative action and how the media is really pushing that. I think uh, Republicans are really trying to push this message that um, the nomination is not just for um, is not just for the greater good of the American citizens, but to, to further push their political agenda. And they're really trying to push that forth that um, that the um, Democrats are doing that through how they're talking about her in the media and how they um, praise her. You know, a lot of them are like, this is not going to happen to you. And certainly if by the Republicans and certainly if we do do it, then we should catch heat. But that's not going to happen. And you know how they're wording it. But also on the flip side, let's look at how Fox News is talking about her. Like, why does Tar uh, Tucker Carlson think this necessary to ask about her LSAT score? She went to Harvard, got, a law, got two degrees from Harvard University. So why is it necessary that we're talking about an LSAT score when Harvard's median LSAT score is around a 170 out of a 180? So I, I just don't see the, the, the correlation in that in talking about her qualification based on her LSAT score. When we can look at everything that she's done beyond that. I mean, she has her degree, which means she was able to matriculate through an Ivy League school, which is ranked number three for law schools. So why is her LSAT score necessary? So I think there is 
a, me a message that's really being pushed by Republicans. And it's it's not exactly about her, but about just political agenda and how their um, Republicans feel that Democrats are using the media and using uh, Judge Brown Jackson to push that, theirs in particular. And just to add to the LSAT score thing, like, no one cares about your LSAT score. Everyone, I mean, she graduated. First of all, she graduated from Harvard with law school with honors. I mean, it, that that says it all right there. So to me, it was just like, I mean, another thing, we're just belittling her. We're just trying to find ways, you know, to make her seem as like the enemy where it's, you know, it it's not that it, it, there was a, um, I think it was a tweet where it was saying that, you know, having to, you're knowing that you're the most educated person in the room and still having to, you know, uh, hold that poise and, and, you know, feel like, okay, well, I know, you know, I know that people are going to continue to talk about me. I know that all these, all these things are going on, but I still have to be smart. I still have to, you know, be on my P's and Q's. And it's, you know, it was just it's sad that this is even a thing. Exactly. I mean, in what conversation have you heard someone say, I've graduated with my uh, JD from Yale Law School or Harvard Law School and, and following, they say, so what was your LSAT score? I just, I, I and in what conversation does that logically follow? I don't know, but maybe for him, it makes sense. I definitely agree. So let's move to another question. Um, so how did you guys feel about um, uh, whether or not, like, well, while uh, Judge Kentaji Brown Jackson's, uh, her questions on her judicial philosophy and um, whether or not they aligned with the senator's attempt to portray her as a judicial activist. And I just want to add that, you know, she's not the only um justice that has done this, that has abstained from her political views. So, you know, what do you guys think? Well, my first instinct on it is that it is extraordinarily hypocritical coming from the GOP senator's side to make accusations about judicial activism when it's been Senator McConnell's goal, and I argue he's been successful in moving the entire needle of the judiciary in the country over into extreme right-wing activism. <laughs> so with that being like the context and the background and the setting that we are currently living in, uh, it, it seems uh, like an obfuscation and a little bit of a um, deflection, I think, because it, it's sort of uh, losing if if we're going to say from a political stance, which a judicial nomination and a confirmation should not have to be a political thing because it's supposed to be about interpretation of the law, but that's been politicized. So it's it sucks because what they've done is they've created an environment where there is a lot more freedom for the right to legislate around very loose interpretations of uh, human rights essentially. Meanwhile, they're trying to block anyone who has opposing views from having any access to that interpretive area of the law so they can change it back or move the needle back into a reasonable space. So when they attacked her for being a judicial activist, that, that irked me for, you know, on top of the reasons of it being belittling and just, you know, downright, downright racist, it, it's also alarming politically because they're actively and kind of tipping their hand and showing what they're trying to do. Any other thoughts on this? Yeah, I just want to say, um, didn't read much on this story, but I just think in general, when I look at and understand kind of how society works, I think um, anyone that goes outside of the norm that is not in the majority of of the company is always going to look at as the rebel, as the activist, as someone who's going against the norm. And I think um, I think first it's okay to not agree with the majority. It's it's okay to to not side with them if you feel as though you have a right not to. And I do, I don't think that. Um, yeah, I just think I just think at the end of the day, like you're always going to be called a radical or there's always going to be a title put on you if you don't agree with the majority and if you don't look like majority. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. Um, so we'll continue with that. 
Uh, let's talk a little bit more about um, uh, Senator Hawley and Senator Ted Cruz, them pushing the argument that, um, you know, Judge Jackson is soft on sex offenders and uh, child pornographers. Do you think that, um, you know, with her comments that them this is backfiring on them? I don't know if I would say it's backfiring on them. I, I, I did not read the news article, but what I can say is that um, it's definitely pushing a, a, a very particular message. You know, that you can tell in some of the things that um, Senator Hawley said when he asked in particular, he asked multiple times, who was the victim here? When he was talking about a very specific case with the uh, 18-year-old who had the uh, eight, nine, and ten-year-old videos of child pornography, and he kept and she apologized, and um, he kept saying, "Well, who's the victim here?" Because there were real victims. And then when we go to uh, Ted Cruz, who then talks about her, um, her sitting on the board for Georgetown's private school, and how in the different books, the anti-critical uh, race theory, how he talked about critical race theory, it's pushing a very particular message here. And it really goes back to how Republicans overarching goal is that this is Democrats trying to push a certain agenda. You know, it goes critical race theory is something that Republicans do not really stand for. I mean, let's look at Texas. It goes to the sex offenders. And I really like how she stood firm in saying, you know, it's up, it's at her discretion based off of what Congress has said. It's at her discretion. So if they have a very big issue with it, then do something about it. And he said, well, which Congress said we will not do, they're not going to do anything about it. So why are we talking about it? You're in a position to make some, to put some guidelines and say, well, these are the guidelines that you have to go about, but you're not going to do that. So why are we talking about it? It's, it goes, it's goes back to them really trying to push a message. And I don't know if it's backfiring, but I do know that I know how a lot of people feel around child pornography and sex offenders. And the way that Republicans are really pushing this, Democrats need to protect her. They really do. Because, you know, they, they talked about, Republicans talked about how during the Bre um, Brett Kavanaugh hearing confirmations, how there were rocks thrown into um, windows and things like that. If we're going to keep talking about child pornography in the way that they are, we need to protect her. Because you just never know the violence that may um, be incited towards her. Any other comments? <laughs> I'm trying to keep the conversation going. <laughs> um, I I think that it's an old and tired trope, honestly, politically to be used. Um, whenever anyone is upset at another side and wants to pull something up, they will try to find something that has to do with children or sex offenders because it is something that is universally reviled, rightfully so. But, um this think of the children mentality tries to pull punches at like an emotional core more so than it does at any kind of legislative or punitive or rehabilitative sentencing it has nothing to do with the laws that she would be uh, like interpreting and applying to cases and so um and i mean it would when it comes up to the supreme court and they have to talk about that but it's another one of those things where I was talking about them shifting it, you know, like the, one of the core tenets of the Republican political party has to do with being hard on crime. Um, but that has historically been a euphemism for also being hard on minorities and especially like black people. So there's a reason for there to be meaningful changes to the law and meaningful changes to the, and how you apply the law when it comes to people of, um, you know, minorities, we need to be sensitive to that history and try not to be unfair about it. But if we are then being softer on criminals, then that opens up um, these judges and other people in the law to tax from people who say, oh, you're being soft on crime. And then you have the option of either playing into that game or accepting it or just being silent. Um, here, I think it was fairly easy to sidestep because it was easy what they were. It was easy to see what they were doing, but, um, 
is a lot of political theater and it was a lot of just attacking. Um, but if it's stink of desperation, I think is the thing I can kind of take out of it was if they really had anything substantial, even like when Hillary was running for president and Benghazi kept coming up and the emails kept coming up, you know, now in the past that looks laughable, right? And I could see them trying to do something similar here, but we, I think, have, I hope as a country have gotten wiser to these tactics and we should continue to do so. Um, so when I, when I saw that, I thought it was laughable. I did think it was dangerous. I did think it was is completely irresponsible and it showed a complete lack of respect for her humanity and her safety. But I did not think it was rooted in anything legal, you know? Yeah, I also wanted to add, I also think it was desperate as well. I think Republicans see and know, it, know they know within themselves that she is very qualified to sit with, with the rest of these justices. But I also think that because they know that, they're looking and grasping for something that will make her look poorly. And so what better than to do, to, to talk about her um, doing very low sentencing for child pornography or for sex offenders. Let's find anything that we can do that'll make her look very low, because um, very uh, smaller than what she is. Because I mean, everyone's talking about how she's highly educated, how she has a lot of experiences in comparison to sitting, currently sitting justices. So what can we use that can make her, uh, that, we, that we can use to our advantage to say, well, why didn't we use, um, why didn't we pick any of the other potential nominees? Yeah, I agree with every, with everything you guys have said. I think it's like that old tired trick of, oh, okay, you know, we can find nothing else on her. So let's pull some things from the bag and let's see if it'll work. And because of their audience, I mean, they know exactly who they're, they're, um, you know, talking to when they're doing these confirmations, you know, those people, of course, are going to be like, yeah, you know, let's not, um, let's not confirm her because, you know, X, Y, and Z, this is really just them trying to continue to campaign on their own to get their funding for their campaigns later on down the line. This really has nothing to do with Justice, Jack uh, Justice Jackson to me. So, yeah, so let's uh, let's flip the conversation. You know, um, I think I can talk about Justice Jackson all day. You know, Black power, Black woman power. I'm here for it. I cannot wait um, to see it. This is a this is a really big moment for um, Black women and women in general. Uh, in general. And so let's talk about Ukraine. I know. So um, it's been a month um, since Russia has invaded Ukraine. And let's talk about U.S. interference. What grade would you give uh, the Biden administration handling on the ongoing crisis in Ukraine? I mean, my expertise doesn't lie in military or economic matters, so I can only confidently speak to their humanitarian actions. But between the $14 billion in aid, accepting 100,000 refugees, publicly calling Putin a war criminal, um, along with the economic sanctions that have been passed by Congress, on top of efficiently um, cooperating and communicating with our European allies, but at the same time not committing U.S. troops uh, to a crisis, instead using like NATO standby forces. I think the administration is doing a great job, um, especially considering like we're post-Afghanistan. We like there are concerns, anxieties, and fears about war. So I probably would give them an A minus, like the crisis is still unfolding. Hopefully it'll come to an end soon. Um, he's traveling to Poland tomorrow. Um, Poland has is the EU country that's taken the most amount of refugees, I think 2 million right now. There's another conversation to be had about Ukrainians being white Christian refugees over minority refugees, but that is not part of this question. Um, overall, I think, the administration is doing great. We continue to see really good momentum from Congress and from Biden and Harris, um, hopefully to help solve this in whatever way that we can. I do think though, like we could be a little bit more uh, forthcoming with President Zelensky, um, just regarding like what we can and what we can't do. Um, I think that's pretty much known, like we can't again give US troops to Ukraine, but there are Americans voluntarily going to Ukraine to fight. Um, so I think we're, he's doing what he can, again, given the political climate, global landscape, post-Afghanistan environment, and so forth. 
Yeah, I definitely want to jump in on this. So um, as you know, I work for the British government, so I'm kind of giving an outsider's insider's view, if that makes sense. Um, so I personally would give uh, them a B. I think they're doing the best that they can in the circumstances. There's always room for improvement. So I think the first one of the main points is we have to understand that obviously um, Ukraine isn't officially a part of NATO. So that's like first thing. So that obviously means that there is no obligation to actually provide military support, right, in this war. So that's first thing. Um, and I think because of that, like I know the U.S. normally um, kind of situates themselves as kind of the savior of nations. Um, but I think in this, in uh, during this time or at this time specifically, I think the U.S. is being more strategic in their approach. Um, I think because they're recognizing that once they make that call for war, other allies have to then provide that military support. Um, and because the U.S. is a superpower right now, and if they make that call for war, they're putting other countries who would suffer or maybe suffer worse as far as like resources and, and having access to that in jeopardy. So I think of, for example, the U.K. right now, we're actually dealing with the cost of living crisis. We're dealing with an energy crisis. There's other crises that are actually happening. So right now, many countries like the U.K. cannot afford a war. Um, and then also off the back of COVID and lockdown. I mean, many economies were hit very hard and it's it's actually taking time for countries to bounce back. So I think with that being said, the U.S. recognizes that and and has decided to take um, a more diplomatic approach as far as as far as calling the wrong out, as far as put, placing sanctions. Um, and I think the best way to really draw out a war uh, is to actually dry out those resources. So basically, you know, stopping abled soldiers from from being able to, to fight the war, um, you know, not supporting military equipment and most importantly, money. So for me, obviously, we, we research uh, in history where sanctions really haven't worked. And a lot of the times they've done more harm than good, especially to the citizens and civilians. Um, but I think this time seems a bit different um, just here in the UK, just understanding kind of what uh, not only the UK government, but US and also um, EU and some actual Asian uh, allies as well uh, placed uh, some sanctions and it's mainly targeting the central bank. So I think, uh, and reportedly there are more sanctions to come. Um, so I do think that this method of draining resources uh, is seems to be a bit beneficial at this time. I think my only question, and I guess something that I've, I've always thought of is, will Ukraine be able to continue defending the country until that drainage actually takes effect? I think that's the only caution right now. But I think at this point, the U.S. are really taking that stance and understanding, considering the greater good rather than that emotional response to go and fight automatically. Um, but yeah, there there is always room for improvement. Uh, and I think that's with any situation. You can't, when it comes to war, no one's perfect and no one has a perfect solution. Uh, so you just have to kind of do what you can, but also make sure you're you're looking out for your allies as well. And I think that's what the U.S. is doing. Yeah, I also gave them a B as well, um, uh, in part because, you know, we see sanctions are working. We see that Biden's put, putting work in to really dry out these resources. He traveled to Texas. He's trying to purchase oil. But I'm a big communications person. You know, I study political communication. So my thing is, how are we communicating this to the American people in a way that is applicable to them and the way that they understand it in the way that it impacts their lives? You know, for a, a lot of what Americans see is high gas prices. <laughs> so how are we explaining that to them in a way that they understand? It's not because the Biden administration is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's actually the opposite it's because of, of what the sanctions that we're doing and how Russian, how that backfires on us. Um, but I did see a Pew Research article where 47% of Americans they they do approve of approve of Biden's uh, the Biden administration's handling on the Russian invasion. But there is this 13% that they're just not sure how they feel about it. And I think communication, effective communication, can really solve that. Effective communication could increase that 47%. Um, I think that. What they're doing is effective, you know, with the U.S. and the European Union um, having um, export controls on technology, especially like microelectronics. I think that's going to hinder technological developments in Russia. Um, but my biggest concern is just how are we communicating it? Biden put out a press release about 
um, warning of, um, he warned us around cyber, cyber attacks, but he also put another press release around expecting food shortages. How are we communicating that to the American people so that they can prepare for it? You know, my biggest thing is communication. I think we could do a lot better in how we're communicating in the way that an average American will understand it in a way that it applies to them. I just want to jump. Oh, sorry. No. Yeah. I just had very quick thing to say in response to what you said. I think that you're entirely right. Um, I remember that I think it's fairly early in, the, early in the Biden administration. They had a really active campaign regarding COVID vaccination and like masking. And they were doing things like hiring TikTok influencers. And I think Olivia Rodrigo came to the White House. Like they have the resources and someone on their team did at the time at least have a very effective like idea of understanding like how to not only just disseminate the message but to make sure you get it to um people who it affects and i think in a lot of cases that is like both like teenagers and their families <laughs> because like they're the ones that are consuming the most resources right because their parents are taking care of a lot of their things until they go to college or you know go off to work wherever for example so i i think that that's like an opportunity that's being missed definitely um we're we're seeing hardships we're seeing a bit of confusion and generally when people have it explained to them they're really okay with it because they support ukraine and that's actually a, a little bit of a bright spot of hope for me is just how many people support ukraine you can talk about the racial dynamics of that all day but you know aside from that people are unified behind the idea of protecting uh a country from an invading force. So there's at least hope on that front. But if we could just get the country a little bit more on the same page, I think we'd be on a good spot. Yeah, I just wanted to come in with that point about communication as well, because I think um, <laughs> it's important you say that because while we're suffering now, a lot of people don't understand that if we do go to war, all of this that we have now is gonna be twice three times as worse. So I feel like if, so on one hand, yes, we're right now we're suffering and at the end of the day or suffering, sorry, I should put that in quotes uh, compared to what people are actually suffering at this point. Um, so yes, there will be some repercussions that we take on because at the end of the day, war costs something for everybody even though it's not between, even though we haven't gotten involved, even though it's not between our country, it's it costs everybody something. Um, but right now we're paying a small price compared to what we could be paying if we do decide to go to war. So I think, yeah, you're right with that communication, just letting people know, look, this is at this point what we can see. And as we continue to, as of course, um, nations continue to talk amongst each other, like this right now is some of the best actions that we could be taking at this point. Um, and especially when we talk about economic uh, recovery, a war for anyone at this point is is too expensive. So um, yeah, I mean, that's, I think, yeah, go ahead with the B, I say. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with the messaging because I think to a, a normal person or everyday person, um, they're thinking, oh, we're able to give $13 billion, you know, aid to Ukraine, but, you know, we haven't seen a stimulus check <laughs> in a while, you know, and, and we're seeing these high gas prices. We're seeing, you know, the inflection of uh, inflation of uh, food prices. So it's like, what is, you know, how we know how this is technically affecting us, but we really don't know how this is affecting us. And so I think that, you know, we should do a better job with, you know, saying, hey, um, this is what's going to happen if we don't do this and this is what's happening, you know, currently. And I think that people would be a little bit more understanding um, of, of Biden's administration and how he's handling it, if there would be a better way to um, communicate it to the everyday citizen. So I definitely agree with the messaging part. Um, and you uh, touched on um, the Biden's warning for a potential cyber attack. So let's talk about that. Um, and so for me, you know, I think about when I think about the cyber attacks, I think about how um, there wasn't a, a cyber attack on gas uh, for in May 7, 2021, and how that majorly affected uh, the United States. And so that's a thing, you know, if that happens, you know, how do you think that would uh, hurt our economy? Well, it would. There's no doubt about it. Um, and. Part of the problem is 
especially that last time, uh, people panicked when they heard about the cyber attack. And so they drove up prices of gas because they panic bought everything. And that's been a trend in United States, um, like spending for decades now, or at least the last decade. And I, I think that that's um, an exploitable weakness that other countries, specifically Russia, are probably well aware of at this point. So I, I don't know how strong the cyber security is on our infrastructure. I suspect much less than it should be. Um, but I also don't know how much damage the direct cyber attacks have versus what the speculative damage is and then the repercussions of how people perceive it are going to be. And I don't think we've learned enough from last time. So from last time, if we have another cyber attack, I think it'll probably be pretty devastating if it goes on for an extended period of time. Um, the good news is I think we have pretty good like people in the United States who like work on like defending against cyber attacks after they've happened or like fixing things once they've gotten, you know, attacked. But um, our bandwidth, like our internet speed is I think like somewhere around 23rd or like 30th in the world. There's countries that are like numbered one, two, three, like um, both in Eastern Europe and over in uh, East Asia. So we don't have the infrastructure, <laughs> even just like coming, uh, just the internet infrastructure to defend effectively against something like that. We really do need to do an overhaul of our infrastructure entirely in the United States. But as part of that, we need to do something about our internet. Yeah, I definitely think um, it's really just about kind of preparing for the worst. So if you're in a fight with someone, uh, they're gonna try to use all the tools in their arsenal to make sure that they either stop you uh, and continue their plans or stop those who are supporting you. Uh, so the U.S. obviously calling Russia out um, is going to have negative impacts on how Russia then retaliates to the U.S. As, of course, um, Putin already warned, uh, the U.S. gets involved, is going to be negative repercussions anyway. So it's kind of at the point where you just have to prepare. Um, and I think when you prepare, you're, you're in a position where if it does happen, then you're you've prepared. So, so the impact may not be as, as traumatic, but if you don't prepare and you're left open, then it's kind of, that's kind of it. So yeah, I just say prepare for what you can prepare for and continue to monitor the situation. Yeah. I think it's important to note that past U.S. intelligence warnings about the timing and, um, and manner of Russian invasions were fairly accurate. Um, and intelligence also has some intel that Russian government is, is exploring options for potential cyber attacks. So if in the past it's been fairly accurate, why not take heed to it now? Um, especially when here we heavily rely on our technology. I agree with Alana that the possibility of a Russian cyber attack is possible and one which for which we should always be prepared for, which was what I think Biden's message was doing and not necessarily saying that a Russian cyber attack was imminent pending US intelligence because US intelligence is saying it is a possibility. It is always a possibility. And in this environment, I can't imagine strategically thinking Putin wants to fight a war on two separate fronts. And I can't even taking it even further, imagine that European allies would take kindly to Russia attacking United States and have a cyber attack leads to physical reinforcements, troops at the border. And I, I don't think a cyber attack personally is part of Putin's grand plan um, in its attack for Ukraine, despite US assistance for Ukraine, the European allies assistance towards Ukraine. If anything, I do think Russia would then target Poland, Estonia, Lithuania, peoples whose critical infrastructure is weaker than ours and, and then move in from there to cut them off, to cut Ukraine off from the rest of the European Union. I, I don't think that it is a likely scenario that we will see a Russian cyber attack in the United States anytime soon, um, especially knowing the limited capabilities and resources that Putin has at his disposal right now because he's fighting a war in a different country and he is losing, or at least he's not winning as quickly as he thought he was going to win.
So let's talk a little bit about uh, nuclear weapons. So uh, what red lines do you think the U.S. should draw and what warnings do President Biden need to make to let Putin know that the U.S. and NATO will take action if Putin use chemical weapons or nuclear weapons? I mean, I think you answered the question personally. Um, any use of chemical or, or biological weapons is definitely a no-go. I think the nuclear threat is less of an option. Um, it just harkens back to Cold War times, like mutually assured destruction is not likely in, in this, again, scenario at least, at least over Ukraine, isn't like a capitalist versus communist ideological battle anymore. This is literally just like, I want these pieces of territory. And I'm not saying this is to justify Putin's actions. Like, I just want these pieces of Russian speaking territories and that's it. It doesn't lead to a nuclear like power fight. Um, I think before the United States gets involved, if he were to use chemical and biological weapons, I think NATO will probably be involved first. Um, that's just more of the more of the, the strategy that the United States and European allies has used in the past um, and can be expected again if that line is crossed. Um, I haven't seen Biden like make any statements regarding Putin and Russia's use of chemical or biological weapons. Um, if it becomes a likelihood, I, I think we'll definitely see him say something about it. Um, but I, I, at this point, like anything's on the table is, is Russia. Um, so again, being prepared is probably like what everyone should be doing, um, especially those Central and Western European countries um, who have the capabilities to exert enough pressure to make sure that that isn't being used. I honestly don't know if Biden should or will issue another warning to Putin. Because at this point, um, it's almost a little bit like the ball is in Russia's court. Um, like what happens next is going to determine the chain of events that either leads to a global conflict or um, essentially Russia turning tail. And my optimism says, and, and the way that this is looking, says that Putin definitely overshot he did not judge this move correctly. I don't think he thought that this was going to turn out the way it did. And I don't think he has the resources or the morale behind it to fully push through with whatever his ultimate goal was. Um, so now it's something to do with how can we finesse or how can we allow him to retain his dignity and not feel embarrassed to the point where he feels he has to lash out at the world. Um, which is a terrible position for the entire world to be in, right? Um, but it's a weirdly familiar one. We're at the whim of someone who's extremely dangerous and has access to nuclear codes. Um, so I think the world is exhausted, but it's not an unfamiliar feeling at this point. Yeah, definitely not unfamiliar. I feel like COVID and, and 10 other things before this just really set it off. But I just want to come back to one of your points about... Um, Basically, the plan, not planning, okay? Um, I mean, I think we kind of sense that that was happening. Um, but of course, like, for example, when uh, the Russian tabloid leaked the number of, of toll deaths in Russia, we could see that Russia is starting to take some hits. Um, I know in speaking with some policy colleagues um, and just, of course, UK government, um, it's reported that Russia is like pretty much surprised of the scale and ferocity of Ukrainian resistance. Um, and that uh, there's, it's difficult because there's, there's a lack of now food, fuel and, and other things that would, would help them continue to move forward uh, and also funds as well. And I think because again, going back to my point of, of kind of drawing out those resources, um, I do think that I'm not sure if this next step with, with using chemical weapons and, and nuclear weapons, I think that will definitely draw the line. And I agree. I think the ball is in Russia's court. I think um, the, you know, the US president, but not only US president, EU allies um, have really made their stance and said, this is what's gonna happen. They've laid it all on the table. This is what's gonna happen. Now the next move is on you. And whatever that next move means, basically you have to accept the consequences, whatever that means as well. So yeah, I just, I do think that 
in, in this moment in time, I do feel like there is kind of like a, maybe we need to reevaluate. I think some people may be saying maybe we need to reevaluate, but I think maybe because of the position where Putin has now find, found himself, he wants to keep pushing forward. Um, and yeah, I, I think we just need to wait and see. Not to step on your toes, Ariana. Ariana, yes, yes. But Alan, I'm so curious to know, like, with the UK's response, I mean, not being a member of the European Union anymore, the European Union seems to be pretty, like, in tandem and step-by-step step with each other, but how the UK is still working and using its relationship with the European Union to have a strategy towards Russia, even if it's, like, drawing the line in the sand, like, is, is that line the same line as the EU's or is it is it different especially being so geographically far away as well like that's just another point but yeah yeah no exactly um so as much detail as I can share on this public platform I do think right now the UK is working on more of their strategic alliances and one of them is the US I think being the most the, the most really the strongest, but the most powerful in, in terms of what the U.S. can bring to the table. Um, so I do think there are definitely plans in the works to, if other things happen, um, what will happen to Europe in general, because obviously the U.K. is still on Europe soil, but they've they've departed from the EU. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that's a tough and tricky question to kind of answer in this forum, but I will say that I think they're very much aligned with U.S. plans, um, and there are lots of talks happening now more than they did before um, or post-Brexit. I think now there are more talks on trying to be aligned to basically go, I don't know about this, to be aligned to fortify or like fortify themselves from whatever this imminent issue is. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, ladies, this has been a very insightful panel. I've learned so much. I'm super excited uh, to go back and watch this again. <laughs> um, so I, you know, thank you all again for, you know, coming onto this panel and giving your, you know, your thoughts, your insights. And so for the girls that are watching this, you know, even if, if they're on now or, you know, someone watches it later on, what is a piece of advice that you would give to your younger self? So I'll go. Um, a couple of things I think for me is, one, surround yourself with people that may not look like you and think like you to understand how they think so that when you're faced or when you need to pull out that information in times, in future times, you understand and you can come to the table with more of a diplomatic approach because you know and you understand how they move and how they work. Um, I think so often we, there's a positive, there's a positive thing about surrounding yourselves with people that look like you, people that think like you. Um, and that is definitely needed in times when you feel like everyone is against you. So yes, you need those people in your corner. But I also think take time to venture out and hear another side, not for not to believe in what they believe and not to necessarily say that they're right, but just to understand. And I think with that understanding, you then can fortify yourself for future situations. So um, that's one thing. And then second thing is you can honestly do anything. I mean, to be honest, I never thought as an American, well, technically I'm a dual citizen, but live my life in America, like American born and raised. I mean, I even sound American, <laughs> but I'm over here working with the highest and the best of the best. Like I never could see that for myself. Um, and then ultimately for those who are Christian and, and obviously I understand that not everyone watching this is, but, um, or if you just have where, whatever you believe, um, continue to walk in that strength and that power and that purpose because you are put on this earth to do something, to say something and to reach somebody. So, yeah. Yeah, I completely, oh, I'm sorry. I completely agree. <laughs> I completely agree with that last point. I am a Christian, so I, I definitely have a, a spiritual background and spiritual advice that I would give myself. Um, 
And it's just reaffirming myself that God's purpose for me is God's purpose for me and can't, and there's no man that can take that from me. Um, but another thing that I always tell my students um, is the more that you know, the more places you go. It's amazing how, and I think we see a lot of that in Judge um, uh, Brown Jackson's that because Republicans can't target her educational background, they go reaching for anything. But I mean, it's it's true. The more that you know, the more places you go. And the last uh, two years when I started my master's degree, I really emerged myself in getting all the information that I can from, whether that's from like professors and learning from their experiences and how they became into, got into the places that they are in, whether that's through reading literature, whether that's through um, looking at research and understanding different things. Um, the, the more that I know, the more I was able to talk to people, the more that they wanted to talk to me and engage in conversations because they felt we were on the same level intellectually. Um, and so now I'm working in spaces that four years ago, I told my advisor as a freshman, hey, I want to do this. And he, he believed it. And now it's happening. Um, so that's the advice that I would give myself because there were many times that I didn't think it was possible. And there are many times that I was told no without even being given the opportunity to advocate for myself, but just being firm in that spiritual belief that no one can take away what God has set for me. And knowing that the more that I educate myself, the more that I'm able to educate others and empower others and allow people to be um, in spaces that I was in or create spaces for people that look like me to be in those spaces. Um, that's really the advice that I would give someone, my younger self. I think my younger self would only need to hear something like, don't worry about the, the pacing. Don't worry about your time. Um, you know, sometimes you know where you're supposed to go and sometimes you're a little lost, but I think I'm not a Christian, but I do feel like spiritually that's similar to what I'm, I'm hearing is like, if you feel like you're behind other people, that's just because those are other people's lives. Just live your own life and make sure you're doing the best you can. I think for me, I would probably say do what makes you happy and what makes you extremely frustrated. Um, it's a, a, a weird thing, but it'll it'll keep you ambitious. It'll it'll keep you happy. There's always something like I do immigration. There's it's such a fluid and controversial field. Like it's it's always moving. I am constantly upset at the Ted Cruz's of the world. I am equally inspired by the Dick Durbin's of the world. So it's it's always a, a back and forth um, and it, it keeps me motivated. Um, I definitely advocate for progressive immigration policies for refugee law and asylum, but there's just, there's just something of like, you, you need Ted Cruz's to like push back so you can make your argument stronger. Like it's it's just inedible. And, and secondly, I would definitely say, recognize what you're doing and know your worth. Like I've worked as many women of color have worked multiple jobs at once and like deliberate jobs, like working at a think tank and then also working on the hill or, or being a teacher and then also being like a coach, like that's not easy. Like it, we, and we just go, oh no, like it's fine. Like it's what I do. It's like, no, like that's hard. And like when people like give you praise for it, like you, you let it soak in, like don't be humble. Like you, you, you can be proud of yourself. Um, and I never was as a kid, but I definitely am now. Um, so I will leave it at that. Well, thank you all. I think mine would be be mindful of the company that you keep. Um, as I was kind of watching, uh, I was watching a few videos and it was of uh, Justice Jackson's, like her friends just talking about her and saying that they knew that she was going to be a Supreme Court justice one day. They, you know, they knew how you know, how hard she worked and, you know, and you have to have those people that are in your circle that are pushing for you. Because if you don't have those people, if you have people that's around you, that's always negatively talking about you or talking about the things that you're doing, you're no longer, you're no, like, you're never going to progress. So have people that are in your circle that's, you know, that's constantly pushing you and, and they may not tell you everything that you want to hear, you know, don't have those friends that tell you everything that you want to hear because they're not going to help you out. You need the people that's going to tell you what you need to hear. And that's very important. And so that's my 
little thing I would tell myself, um, my younger self. But yeah, you know, thank you all so much for doing this panel with me. You know, thank you, Michael Taylor, for giving us the opportunity to take over your podcast. <laughs> um, you should let us do it more often. <laughs> and um, anytime, anytime you want. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. Um, you know, I'm just looking at the next uh, ambassadors, the United Nations, uh, and Elena and Cassandra in the Senate, Kyla in the House, Alasi on the Supreme Court, Ariana for President. Uh, you know, this is a rock star panel. I just want to express my gratitude to each of you on what you brought to the table. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was backstage watching every minute um, and even commented a little bit, but thank you. Thank you. Well, Michael Taylor, if you want to close out, we'll let you do it. <laughs> All right. Well, that was episode 59 of the Political Mike podcast, uh, our special edition, Women's History Edition. With that being said, thank you guys for tuning in. I hope you tune in next week for episode 60. Um, have a good night. Stay engaged and refrain from sketchy news sources, as I always recommend. Thank you, guys.